Our scripture reading tonight is in three different places. First, Psalm 30. Psalm 30, we'll read the whole psalm. And then over to the Gospel of Luke in chapters 17 and 18. And when we get there, I'll let you know what verses we're at. They're both in the middle of the chapter. So first, Psalm 30. Psalm 30, then over to Luke. Listen, this is God's Word. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said, in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forevermore. Now over to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Luke 17, beginning at verse 11. Verse 11, 17, 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Chapter 18, verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight, your faith has made you well. 
And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. The Sunday evening service of Thanksgiving weekend is the Bermuda Triangle of the liturgical calendar. It's where parishioners and sermons go to disappear. You're all tired after a long and busy weekend of cleaning the house and preparing food and being around family and, or maybe traveling and shopping and watching football and maybe you're still under the influence of your turkey's tryptophan. And yet, here you are. So the preacher asks, do I preach one more sermon about Thanksgiving? Do I press on with Advent a week early? Do I try to be like Pastor Flippy and do both in one? <laughs> or would they mind if I extended my series on forgiveness by one, preach one more sermon on that topic? I'm reminded of a story my late father-in-law used to tell of how as a child his pastor preached six very long sermons on six consecutive Sunday mornings on the eight-verse poem, Jonah prayed from the belly of the whale. One sermon each, I think, on the phrases, the waters closed in over me, the deep surrounded me, the weeds wrapped around my head. And on the seventh Sunday morning, as they were walking into the church building, my father-in-law's father turned to him, then a young boy, and said, well, do you suppose Jonah makes it out of the fish today? <laughs> and at the risk of trying your patience, I wanted to say this. After the past few weeks, I was conducting my own private personal post-mortem on my series of forgiveness. And I realized I could have said more than I did on one really crucial aspect of God's forgiveness of our sins. It's not that I neglected it, it just I think needed more emphasis. You'll remember, of course, I preached on who we are and what we do and what sin is. We are sinners who sin, and sin is contrary to God. It's a rebellion, an act of rebellion against a holy God. It's a violation of God's holy law. And so we explored some of the rich vocabulary in the Bible describing sin. Sin is guilt or shame or burden or a debt or bondage and so on. <clears throat> And I preached on what God does in his act of forgiveness and some of the correspondingly rich language of God's forgiveness. He justifies, cleanses, casts out the burden into the sea, redeems us, removes or cancels or covers and so on. He deals with our sin. And each week I reminded you of the result. We are clean. We are restored, we are reconciled, we are made free, we are declared righteous, and, and so on. But if we only focus on the problem, our sin, and on the solution, God's forgiveness of our sin in and through his son Jesus, and on the result, that is, we are forgiven, if we only focus on those, we could run the risk of resting in and rejoicing over our own personal transition from having been a sinner to being forgiven, or simply in the benefit God gives to us, that is forgiveness. 
And we could miss out on the God who forgives or the Son who accomplishes the grounds for our forgiveness or the Spirit who applies that forgiveness to us upon our repentance. Or think of it this way, we teach our children this question and answer from the Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, we know. In other words, well beyond the significant benefit, the blessing, the real blessing forgiveness is to us. Our forgiveness as a new status, our state of being forgiven is not the end or the goal. Our triune God has gone to great lengths out of his love and mercy and compassion and pity to forgive us. But he's done that so that we might be made fit for his presence and might give glory to him. He does it not only, in other words, for our good, but ultimately for his glory. He finds reasons in himself to have come up with this plan and to have executed it for us, for his own glory. That we are forgiven is great. It's very helpful, I think, I'm still persuaded, it was very helpful for us to think about all the ways the Bible describes us as having been forgiven. But that's not the end. It's not the ultimate goal. So tonight, would you join me in giving glory to God for who He is, for what He has done out of the joy and the thrill and the relief of your having been forgiven. And I think here, ten lepers and a blind man can help us as we navigate what I'm trying to do tonight. These are stories that uh, remind us of our own move, our own transition from a state of sin and misery through uh, the salvation uh, that God gives us and to a result of gratitude and joy for that salvation. If you look first, and we'll look at these stories side by each uh, together, notice everyone in these stories is aware of their need. They're all in a state of real misery. You have Jesus on his way to the cross, and especially as the Gospel of Luke presents it, way back when he sets his face toward Jerusalem, he knows he's going to suffer and die. And along the way, he meets some people, or some people meet him. He's traveling through Galilee, which is where he spent so much time in the north. He's going through Samaria, which is that uh, little area bordering Judah. And Samaria, you'll remember, is that region populated by those mixed-race, mongrel, essentially foreigners. These are the folks who have been descendants of those who repopulated the area after the Assyrian conquest. You can think back to 2 Kings for that. Jews were displaced, they were exiled, various parts and pieces of other nations were brought in and resettled there out of a foreign policy that, that intended that no one nation would, would gain the upper hand or rise up and unified and solidify in their opposition towards Syria. And the result, at least, is that Israel has this territory to its north that is um, overrun with people who are not fully ethnically 
Jews. They worship in their own ways. They're not, uh, they're not of the proper bloodline, and they're really second-class citizens and functionally foreigners. In chapter 17, Jesus is in the area between Galilee and Samaria. In chapter 18, he's now in Jericho, about 18 miles from Jerusalem. And again, in both places, he meets people with great needs. First, we have these 10 lepers. They stand off at a distance doing what lepers are supposed to do. They're socially distanced. They are following the laws of the book of Leviticus, chapters 13 and 14, relating to people with skin diseases. They are unclean, so in addition to whatever pain or physical suffering leprosy brought them, they have this additional burden of being socially stigmatized, disenfranchised. But to make matters worse, they are spiritually unclean. They are unable or unfit to enter into God's presence at the temple. That means they're not fit to enter God's presence. They're not fit to worship with other people. So they self-quarantine. And the concern, it seems, has less to do or maybe as as little to do with with, um, contagion than it does with contamination. It's not just that they might be contagious, but that by being near or touching someone, they would make them unclean. So they're to live outside the camp, they're to be clearly visible as unclean, they're to cry out when anyone comes near them, Uh, they're to announce their uncleanness so that others are warned. And if they were ever to be healed, or if the disease were ever to go away, they were to go to the priest to, have, uh, to become certified, as it were, to go to be able to be back and restored. One commentator calls Luke, or, or, sorry, Leviticus 14 as one of the most underused chapters in all of the Levitical code, because it would be so uncommon for someone to be restored uh, from leprosy. But it was only then that they were able to offer a a sacrifice to the Lord and to be restored by the priest to have their good health announced to be reintegrated into society, both socially but as worshipers. Now, how these ten lepers knew who Jesus was is unclear. We're not told. We even assume they're all men, though the text doesn't say, but they discover Jesus is in town. And so from a distance, they lift up their voices, they cry out to him, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. If you jump ahead to chapter 18, it'd be hard for us to pick the more pitiable person. Lepers who suffer physically, who are socially and religiously ostracized in the community, have it bad. But what about the blind man, the blind man who lives within the community, but who depends on others to lead him around? He depends on others to bring him to the best places, the most highly trafficked places, the good corners, where they would be in the path of the most people who might be the most generous so they can beg. 
Both lepers and blind are marginalized. They're ostracized. They're shunned. They're dismissed as uh, irrelevant, of un, uh, unimportant, unproductive. And this blind beggar sits along the roadside, and I suppose for him it was like any other day, hoping to appeal to the mercy and the compassion and the benevolence and the generosity of people walking by who might, out of sympathy or pity, throw him a, a few coins. <clears throat> he hears a buzz, and the crowd becomes noisy, and then he can discern somehow this is not the usual buzz or crowd noise, uh, and there must be something going on. So he asks, what's happening? Again, there's a level of mystery to this story, because when he hears Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, it's clear he has some knowledge of who Jesus is. It becomes even more clear he has some sense of what Jesus can do for him. And so the lepers have to make their voice travel a great distance to be heard. This man has to have his voice stand out from the crowd's voices. So he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Both groups, or the group and the solitary man, they both are in a miserable state. They share in suffering. They both have obstacles that prevent them from getting to Jesus. The lepers and the blind man all seem to know that they are without resource or ability to save themselves or to even improve their condition. They can't appeal to uh, wealth or status or heritage or prestige or in, in any way. They have nothing to bring to claim or to demand an audience with Jesus. They have nothing to trade, nothing to barter, nothing to pay. There's really no reason why Jesus should go out of his way to to help them. So they do the only thing they know how to do. They lay claim to the mercy of Christ. And they do so in full voice. They have nothing else but to lay hold of what they imagine Jesus to have, the quality of mercy. And the lepers and the blind man depend on the mercy and the benevolence of others for their survival, but now they go to the ultimate source of mercy, the one who can do lasting good. These are folks who are in deep need, with no ability to save themselves, and they cry out for mercy. As you know, both leprosy and blindness are images and metaphors in their own right in the Bible for sin and spiritual death. We don't want to make the mistake that disciples do of, well, who sinned, this man or his father or his parents? Jesus says, this is happening. 
that the mercies or the deeds of God may be known. And there's something Luke is presenting that we would step back and recognize that here are people who are in dire need, who recognize they need help from outside, and they call out for mercy. More on that in a moment. Notice, secondly, they meet Jesus and they receive salvation. When the ten lepers cry out for mercy, Jesus doesn't heal them immediately. He commands them to go present themselves to the priest. It is as they are going, they are made clean. It seems like something of a, a test. What do, you, what do you mean go to the priest? We can't go to the priest until we're clean, and, but they go and, and they're made clean. They obey and they're made whole. This stage of the blind man's story is even more developed. Jesus, who's on this mission to get to Jerusalem, is stopped in his tracks. He, he commands that the man who had cried out for mercy, that he be brought to him. And the blind man faces even more opposition than simply distance between himself and Jesus. The crowd is telling him to shut up, to be quiet. It's not clear if they're telling him to be quiet because he is crying out to Jesus as the son of David, or if it's because they're sure Jesus would have nothing to do with a, a blind roadside beggar or for some other reason, we're not told. But as the story is told, interestingly enough, Jesus commands the same members of the crowd who had been telling this man to be quiet now to bring the man to him. And he commends this man for both his, his persistence and for his desire to see Jesus. And he asks a question that seems almost ridiculous to us until we, we see it as a gentle opportunity for the man to express his faith and confidence in Christ. What do you want me to do for you? Lord, let me recover my sight. When Jesus speaks the good word, the man's sight is restored immediately. Ten lepers are healed. One blind man is given sight, all because they met Jesus and because Jesus was doing what he said he had come to do. Remember Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Ten lepers and a blind man called out to Jesus for mercy. And he healed them. He did what he had said he had come to do. They cried out, he healed them. They came to discover Jesus saves those who are without resources. That is, without resources to save themselves. They he came to, to those who are in desperate need of help, who cannot save themselves and who cry out to him for mercy in confidence that he actually can do something about their situation. But notice how both stories end. 
With respect to the lepers, the point of the story, of course, is that only one out of ten came back to Jesus to express his thanks, and he was a Samaritan, a foreigner. Which at least makes me ask the question, well, what did Jesus think he was going to do when Jesus said, go to the priest to be declared healed? Well, notice what he does. He praises God with a loud voice, and he had once been far off. Now he comes right up to Jesus, throws himself at Jesus' feet, and gives him thanks. Jesus had told him to go and them to go to the priest to be pronounced clean, and Luke would have us see this man coming to Jesus, the greater priest, who actually made him clean. And Luke notes, of course, that he was a Samaritan. Jesus himself highlights the fact this man is a foreigner. There's something to do with the moving message of Luke and the ongoing message of the Bible that Jesus comes to his own. But he comes with a gospel message of salvation to all the nations. And so in addition to having been cleansed, Jesus gives this man more. He rewards his faithful a grateful response with the added blessing, rise, go on your way, your faith has made you well. Notice Jesus has asked these questions. Were not ten cleansed? Didn't I see ten of you guys here? Where are the nine? Is there no one to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And the word Jesus uses for foreigners, the same one that would appear on signs around the temple compound forbidding this man and others like him from entering. This man is forbidden by virtue of the fact that he's a foreigner and complicated or added to the fact he is or was a leper. Jesus, at the end, commends this Samaritan, rise, go your way, your faith has made you well. The other nine were equally cleansed of their disease. But it seems their call for mercy was limited to their physical condition. That's what they received was cleansing, which we must say on its own strength is a glorious blessing. But the others experienced the joy of the sign of God's blessing in their healing. This man, this one who comes back, embraces the reality. You might say the nine rejoiced in their status of being forgiven or restored or healed, but did not rejoice as much in the one who healed them. The one who comes back rejoices in his cleansing, in being cleansed, but he rejoices, throws himself at the feet even of the one who gave him cleansing. The blind man has a similar response. I always like to think about this. Who is the first person the blind man would have seen upon the recovery of his sight? 
Jesus. And he attaches himself to Jesus. He glorifies God all the way, and others join him. They are going to be among that crowd, it seems, ushering Jesus into the city on what we call Palm Sunday. And Jesus will say this of his own people as he later weeps over Jerusalem. Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus will use the imagery of blindness to speak of the religious leader, some of the very own people of the day. And here's a man whose blindness Jesus cures. It's just a small picture of the spiritual blindness that had gripped the nation, that many saw Jesus but didn't see him or know him. This man sees what so many others had not because Jesus revealed himself to him. He cries out of his great need, Lord, have mercy on me. Jesus heals him. He sees and he follows. And he follows praising God. So we're back to our original question. Do we rejoice at our new status as being forgiven? Yes. It is a tremendous blessing to the lepers and to the blind man to have been healed. Having been cleansed of leprosy is better than being in a state of being a leper. Having the ability to see is so much better than being blind. So we're thankful for cleansing and for vision. But would you, like the leper, the one leper who comes back, would you like the blind man, as you have recognized your great need, and as you have called out to God in Jesus Christ to have mercy on you, a sinner, and having found salvation in Jesus Christ, would you rejoice in that salvation and, and ultimately and more fully and more finally, would you rejoice in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who came up with this plan for His own glory to magnify His compassion and love and kindness and justice all come to their expression in His Son coming to earth, going to the cross, rising from the dead, and having that salvation applied to you by His Holy Spirit. Would you rejoice both in the salvation you have received, the forgiveness you now know and maybe know even better than you ever did because it has been filled out with all kinds of word pictures. Would you rejoice in that forgiveness, but would you rejoice even more and glorify the God who gives that salvation to you? Would you rejoice in, in the one who gave sight to your spiritually blind eyes? Would you rejoice at that you can see, but would you rejoice in the one who made you see? Would you rejoice in having been cleansed and, and made fit for God's presence? And would you rejoice in the one who has made you fit? 
And would you return and give thanks? Again, rejoicing out of the forgiveness and the cleansing and the peace and the joy, the burden is lifted. You are not guilty. He does not remember your sins. He casts it. All those things are true of you. Your status as a believer is fixed for you. And you can rejoice in that. But would you also ultimately give God the glory and the thanks for making this plan possible, bringing it to completion in his son, and applying it to you? Would you come back and thank him and give him the glory? Let's pray. Father, let us do that. Give you thanks and praise and glory both tonight and forevermore. We thank you for your son, for the healing and the restoration you give us, but we marvel at your grace and mercy and compassion, and we marvel, our God, that you did this, not only for our good, but even more for your glory. We give you thanks this night, and we do it in Jesus' name, and all God's people say together, amen.